Hello and welcome to Talk of Today, where we explore developments in science, technology and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. So today my guest is the Prince of Twitter, or so I've dubbed him, Visa. Visa is an eccentric Singaporean who weaves together a sparkling web of insight, wit and positivity throughout the world of Twitter. The community of people he's built around him is eclectic, and the common sentiment I see among them is an overwhelming appreciation for the content he puts out. Some would call him a marketing consultant, but that's underselling him substantially. Marketing could be seen as the best way to categorize and monetize what I think his gift is, understanding what makes people tick. These insights come in the form of long Twitter threads, covering things like friendships and partnerships, procrastination, marketing, aesthetics, community. There's just far too many to list. All of these threads seem to be interconnected in a massive visa web of insight. I think about it as the twitterfication of his brain. He's also well on his way to writing a million words, which can be found on his blog. He's one of my favorite people to follow because I have no idea what I'm going to read next, but I know it will make me see the world in a new way. We have a pretty scattered conversation, as was expected. Some of the topics that we cover include identity, diversifying your meaning portfolio, aesthetics, ADHD, the three S's for navigating the world, and being a high-voltage person. So please enjoy my conversation with Visa. Visa, um, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. So Mm -hmm. I came across, I I jumped on Twitter uh, earlier on this year, as we discussed before, and uh, I came across you, I'm not too sure how, but um, you are probably one of my favorite followers, uh, one of the favorite people I'm I'm following because of the eclectic, because I never know what's going to come out. I never know when I see (laughs) what's post, uh, what's going to come out. Neither do I. Yeah. Mm so, and I realized having done some, when I was doing some preparation for this and uh, just, you know, going through some of your tweets that one of the hardest things you probably do is explain mm-hmm. what you do. <laughs> yeah. True. So That's when people true. ask you, Hey Visa, so what do you do? I mean, it's a, it's a terrible question to open up to anyone, but how do you, mm-hmm. how do you respond? When someone says, what do you do? How do you respond? So I try to calibrate my response to what I sense the person is asking. Well, even that is, there's, a, there's layers to it. So uh, I'm reminded now of a, I'm not sure if it was a joke or a coin, maybe both, but someone was saying that when you ask uh, some like Zen master, when you ask them a spiritual question, like what is the meaning of life or something, he'll answer in some mundane way, like, oh, it's sweeping the floor. And when you ask him like a, a, mon- a mundane question like oh what should we do for dinner and he'll answer with a spiritual answer like uh, we should i don't know feast on our souls or something i don't some some crazy shit and the point of that is he's 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 being kind of playful right so he's he's trying to receive the spirit of the question but he doesn't want to give like a like a boring answer that you know kind of fits entirely within the person's expectations of what was going to be answered so you want to surprise people a little bit but at the same time, you don't want to go like completely off the rails and, and you know, answer in gibberish. Or There's some like performance artists and comedians who try to do... Like Jim Carrey had a period of time where he was uh, kind of responding to things in very like outlandish ways to almost shock and confuse the audience. So where I am right now is I think I try to, to challenge myself as well as to challenge people to kind of be a little bit more imaginative 
And uh, I mean, so what do I do in, 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 in the context of our conversation? Uh, well, for, you know, to make a living, I do marketing consulting, but that's just, uh, you know, that's just what I do to pay the bills. What I really do, I think, is I am playing publicly with ideas and perspectives. And so I do that with tweets. I do it with essays um, and just every form of interaction. I'm, I think I'm trying to demonstrate a way of interfacing with reality, a way of interfacing with other people, a way of interfacing with ideas in a way that is fun, in a way that's nourishing, in a way that's uh, surprising, exciting. And yeah, so how I frame that is something that I change all the time because I don't want to get too stuck on, oh, I'm an essayist, therefore I only write essays. Or, oh, I'm a consultant, therefore you should come to me with a certain kind of thing. So I try to, I try to play. So I'm like a, a guy playing on Twitter. Okay. So mm-hmm. how, like, what's the story that led to where you are today? How did you go from uh, being brought into the world as Visa all the way to mm-hmm. our conversation today? What was the, the general, the, the general, what's the general story? Right. So the funny thing to me is that to me, what I do just feels natural. It doesn't feel, it, it feels like, so there are a lot of things about the way I am that to me feel obvious and in interacting with people along the way, I have come to realize pretty slowly and pretty late that it's not actually equally obvious to everybody else. They don't operate with the same set of assumptions. And so I guess how I would tell my story, which I was recently telling someone else was, um, you know, when I was a child, um, I wasn't super close to my family. I mean, we, we had a nice, we had a decent family household, decent kind of average, unremarkable kind of NPC family life. And then when my parents brought me, yeah. And then when my parents brought me to the library for the first time, it blew my mind. It's like, Oh my God, like every book is a, is a portal into another universe, right? You're reading about Egypt and dinosaurs and all kinds of crazy stuff. So that, that blew my mind when I was what, four five. Right. And I would borrow books all the time. I would, I would borrow my mom's library card and borrow like eight to 12 books at a time next to my bed. And I would be reading all the time. And when I encountered the internet, so I was about maybe seven or eight, that blew my mind again because now it's like here is a library, here is the kind of global hyper library and you can contribute directly to it. So before that, I used to think, oh, one day maybe I'll become an author and I get to participate in this process of, of librarying, right? Like there's a library and people participate and I have received, you know, knowledge and wisdom and love from authors and I want to give back to that that process that felt very obvious and natural to me. And then when I got internet access, I was like, Oh my God, I get, I don't even need to wait until I become like a published author or a, I don't need to get a, a publishing agent or so, sorry, anything like that. But you saw that participating in that creation that, that mm-hmm. you could, you saw that as quite obvious because I feel that yeah. as a lot of people, when they grow up, they see, the world, they, 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 they don't participate within the world. They just observe it. But mm-hmm. early on you were like, right. no, I can contribute to this volume of, of, of work. So yeah. I can actually be a, be a participant, not just an observer. Yeah. That seemed very natural to me. And I guess a kind of side story to that is, um, and I, I again, I'm, I'm still figuring out just how intertwined this is. So I'm, I'm a Singaporean Tamil. I'm a minority race. So most of Singapore is Singaporean Chinese and I'm tall, unusually tall for Singaporean. I'm left-handed. I, there are many, many ways in which I'm kind of misfit 
and so from a very young age, I was always kind of repeatedly called that. I have a strange name relative to most people. And so I'm very used to always being singled out, always being called out for like, you know, so in school, if there's like a group project, like all my group mates would pick me to like be the one presenting. And it, it just kind of, a lot of my life experience has kind of um, conditioned me to, to assume that I'm supposed to speak up or I'm supposed to participate, I'm supposed to, you know, take, take charge in a way. So that's just kind of a side threat. But yeah, so going back to the internet, when I, when I had internet access, I was excited about the possibility of contributing directly. And, you know, so I had my, I, I set up my own homepage. I had like a guest book that people could sign and, and things like that. I, I put together like links to my favorite video game sites and stuff like that. And I just kept doing more of that. So when I was in school, my friends had, uh, had blogs and blogs back then were like Facebook statuses. Basically it'd be like, I, I went to school today and then I met my friends and we went to the arcades after school or something like that. And we just did that. And at some point, um, I was on live journal, I think. And, uh, there was, uh, there was a live journal community called like SG underscore LJRS, Singaporean live journalists. And, I was like, oh, wow, cool. Here are other people like me who are publishing stuff, like whatever small talk kind of things. And uh, I wanted to contribute to that. And so I wrote some, some you know, like 16-year-old idealistic commentary piece about, hey, why can't, let's be a more gracious society. Let's be, you know. And, and I got like 10 comments, which at the time when I was like uh, 15, 16 years old, I was like, blew my mind. Like I can write something and receive 10 comments from strangers. And so I just did more and more of that. And so, you know, when Quora came around, I was posting on Quora. When Twitter came around, I was tweeting. And I was always kind of participating in in producing content, I guess, in writing, essays, whatever the case. And yeah, so eventually people started, more and more people started taking notice. And, and I was getting like retweets and shares and replies and and I started getting on people's radars, I guess, and that eventually brought me to you. Mm-hmm. And that brought you brought you work. It's kind of been yeah. like the act of creating in general uh, has mm-hmm. been the, I guess, the catalyst for everything that's, that's happened to you today. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're Singaporean. You're, you're from Singapore. Mm-hmm. And uh, Singapore is a pretty interesting place. Um it's, right. as you said, it's, you know, really diverse. Uh, there's a number of different races uh, represented. It's a new country. It only came about, uh, the middle of last century. Um, so when you, and you know, I'm from, I'm from Australia. I lived in, in a number of different countries. So the issue of identity is an interesting one, uh, mm-hmm. to me. So given that Singapore is a new country and doesn't really have so much of a, an old traditional national identity and there's a whole variety of, you know, there's this mishmash of cultures where you're celebrating Chinese New Year and Deepavali, Hari Raya, all these different things. Um, how do you think, and, and the fact that you grew up basically connected to the internet, um, connected mm-hmm. to the world, uh, you're basically a, you're, you're a netizen. So how do you th- think of yourself in terms of uh, identity? Like who are you in, in the context of, of the world at large? So there are many layers to this and, uh, you know, we could probably spend multiple hours discussing this, but, uh, it's, so even with, let's say, okay, where do I start? Um, I think first of all, 
if you ask me what identity is, I think it's primarily an interface. So it's, you know, there's a story of like this guy who like went into the jungle and he lived off the land for like almost 20 years. I think like once in a while he would sneak the civilization and like steal food and stuff, but mostly he was living in his own. And so the journalist who finally interviewed him at the end of the whole thing asked him kind of, uh, what was it like? How did you feel being, you know, away from people? And he said something like, uh, I forgot I existed, you know, because there was nobody, there was no one he had to perform a coherent identity to. And so in the absence of anybody else to, for you to say, oh, my name is so-and-so, or, you know, I do this, I do that, right? Without, when there's no need for it to interact with anybody else, um, your, your identity, it appears to me that your identity just kind of dissolves. And I think, you know, if you read up about people's experiences with, with psychedelics and, and hallucinogens or like intense meditation or just, this, there's a whole bunch of different ways you can experience this, but there is this state that people um, attain, which is like a, the identity collapse, identity dissolution. And, and I mean, it's, it never lasts very long because people eventually go back into society or communities where you have to interact with other people. And when you have to interact with other people, you have to come up with an interface. So like my face, your face, interface, right? And so the interesting thing about identity is that it is, it can be very, very multifaceted. Faceted is also face. Right. And it depends on kind of who you're facing. So, you know, um, when I travel anywhere in the world, usually, and people meet me, like, so when I'm in Thailand or, or Philippines or the States even, people tend to assume that I'm Indian from India because, like, I guess statistically, you know, people who look like me are likely to be from India. There's a billion of them in India. So it's, it's likely that I'm probably from India. It's a good guess. Um, except when I go to India. So when I go to India, they know that I don't quite... You know, I don't dress the same way they do. I don't speak the same way they do. My accent is slightly different. And so they know that I'm not Indian. They're like, oh, are you Malaysian? Are you Singaporean? Like they, they, they can tell. And so it has been interesting to me to try to figure out an identity that serves me, that's useful to me in my like daily life or, or my longer term life even, but isn't you know, kind of a, of a, of a burden or like a, like a, tr like a kind of a, a gilded cage. Wait. Yeah. So you, you know, if at, sometimes I wake up and I'm like, I, I wish I didn't have to care about my identity at all. I do like, you know, even am I a man, am I a, a, a Indian man, brown man, Singaporean, you know, like, I don't want to care about any of those things. I just want to play with ideas and play video games or have fun and, and not have to care about who I so-called am. But at the same time, you can't escape the fact that people are always going to have assumptions about who you are or where you're from. And, and you know, they're, they're kind of pros and cons to having an identity. And so I try to get the, like maximize the benefits and then minimize the costs by, by being kind of self-authored, self, um, you know, self-constructed, you know, the self is a construct, but like you can, you can inspect element and kind of adjust <laughs> and modify, but you can't completely switch things out entirely. And I say that, Oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a God. You have to believe, I mean, you know, okay, it's messy, but like, yeah, that, that it's, there are variables you can play with. And there are some things that people will accept immediately when you tell them that I'm a, you know, I am a extrovert, right. Or whatever. I can, I can decide that I can maybe decide that I'm an introvert and then change that part of my identity maybe i mean it's 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 slightly flexible but not entirely but it's a, there's, there's a lot of space to play with and um there's something else i wanted to 
talk about in this context, which is, oh yeah, you mentioned about like Singaporean identity being a, a relatively young country. That's true. But at the same time, the interesting thing to me is that, you know, Southeast Asian history goes way back. It goes back hundreds of years. And Southeast Asia in general is actually kind of um, different than most of the rest of the world. And that's because it's along a maritime, a global shipping trading route. So like from the 1400s all the way to the 1900s, like just, you know, so you have Malays, you have Chinese, you have Arabs, you have Indians, you have all kinds of people who, who came to trade. And, you know, they, 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 when they came to trade, they also brought along their architecture, their religions, their cultural artifacts and so on. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of mixing that happens, a lot of intermingling. And, you know, so they're like Peranakans who are like, like Chinese with Malay roots and stuff like that. And um, so, you know, the, the kind of maritime empires that used to exist. So there used to be the Mahapajit, Mahapajit, Majapahit, Majapahit Empire in the 1600s and the Sri Vijaya Empire in the 1400s. And if you read up about those things, it's very, you know, I believe that there is such a thing as a kind of, Southeast Asian identity that is deeper and older than any of the nation states. And the more history I read, the more I I relate to that and the more I identify with it, which is, you know, to be Southeast Asian, whether you're Indonesian or Malaysian or Singaporean, to be Southeast Asian is to be someone who is very comfortable with contradictions because you live full of contradictions, right? So the example I give is like Indonesia is... I think practically the largest Muslim state in the world. It's like a Muslim majority country of 200 million people, but like their national, they used to be a Buddhist Hindu kingdom. And so like their national airline is called Garuda airlines and Garuda is like the Hindu symbol. And it's just that, that contradiction is just natural and normal to them, which would be pretty strange to, you know, like imagine, let's say like uh, Americans with uh, like a, like a Muslim symbol that is I mean I'm sure if you, if you dig into it you'll find some interesting complexity and, and stuff in the background that people tend to gloss over but um, I'm especially curious about these things because I feel like what happened to Southeast Asia in the 1400s through the 1900s is almost like a teaser for what is about to happen to the whole world because the, what happened to Southeast Asia happened because of maritime trade like there was that that kind of everything around that 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 path of cultural exchange, everything around it just gets weird. Like, because it's, it, there's so much exchange going on. And now like that, the sh- global shipping route is like the international internet all over the whole world. And people are not, um, not ready for it. Right. You can see all the, there's all the, the, the cultural wars is happening now because people grew up kind of, um, exposed to very, uh, homogenous cultures. And like, you know, you go to the same church and everyone looks like you and, so on and so forth. And now everyone is being exposed to people from dramatically different cultures, from dramatically different backgrounds and perspectives and values. And people are not very skilled at, um, at playing with that. And so you get, you, get, you get a lot of antagonism and violence and conflict. And so, you know, I almost see it without, without holding it too preciously and too kind of uh, turning it into a, a, a trap or box is that, you know, I almost see my Singaporean identity or my Southeast Asian identity as kind of a, 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 how would you say, like a, like a light, maybe like a, like a, a possible 
sign of how things could be navigated. Like, like I, I think I possess, uh, and I mean, uh, people have said this as well, so it's not just uh, me being full of myself, but like, uh, I think I have through, partially by accident, partially out of necessity, I've kind of developed a way of navigating kind of cultural crosswinds. And that is a very maritime Southeast Asian thing to do. And I think that um, the world needs more people who are able to do that so that we can, we can navigate the, like the cultural wars we see right now are still, it's still like season one or season two. Like it's going to get way crazier once like 4 billion people more come online. So we are, (laughs) so it's it's just, it's just a thing. That's how, that's kind of how I think about it. And I'm, I'm very comfortable or I say I'm very comfortable with the idea of like um, my identity being something that is flexible, that it could change, you know, like, so today I might focus on one thing, but like next year I might focus on another. I think, I think the ability to kind of modify your own identity and, and play up certain bits, play down certain bits and kind of um, improvise it. Mm. That, that gives you a certain freedom. I think I do think right at at the, at the beginning it can be unsettling and, and kind of, um, like there's no, there's nothing stable to stand on. So it's kind of like, 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 then you realize that you're actually okay and that you can actually continue to adapt. I think it's something that a lot of, a lot of people come to, to realize or, and I hopefully, uh, hopefully many people come to realize increasingly that, Mm -hmm. um, who they are and their identities and and what they know is subject to change. And that they become people who are capable, like if they shift their, their notion of themselves that they are people who are capable of changing, then mm-hmm. it suddenly gets better for everyone because people are less yeah. in there. You know, they, they don't, they right. tend to be less confrontational. They tend to be yeah. more empathetic because they realize that there are other ways of, of, of being and that they can change that they themselves can change. And if that's the case, then everyone else can as well. Yep. Exactly that. Yeah. So I feel like I cut you off on a on a bit of a, a good. A good <laughs> no, it's riff. fine. So it's it's we were talking about identities and being able to experiment with like different facets of your identities. Even having a multifaceted identity, right? I, my a friend of mine was telling me a story about his ex. Um, I think his his brother-in-law or something like so. His brother-in-law invested like his whole life into being a successful investment banker like that was his like his dream i guess and it wasn't it wasn't that he's passionate about banking he just wanted and he isn't even really passionate about money he just he just had this idea that oh if i become an investment banker i will make a lot of money and i will be happy like he he got he got invested he got invested in the idea of being an investment banker and so you know he had a very he did not have fun during his teenage years, for example. So like when his friends were partying or whatever, he's like, no, I'm, I'm, my eyes on that prize and I'm going to study hard and I'm going to not socialize. And just all the way, he just kept making decisions that, that kind of led him to that, that Holy grail. And then like, I think he was, he was successful for a few years. He bought like expensive cars and stuff and then he got laid off. And then like after that, like he totally crashed. He became like a miserable, depressed, like he's playing video games every day. And, and like his wife wants to leave him now because he's just so despondent. And, you know, I look at that and I'm like, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry for him and for his wife. And like, you know, it's, it's, it's a sad mess all around. But that was precisely the outcome that I was afraid of when I was a teenager. I remember when I was in junior college and like uh, my teachers and, and friends were all like, oh, study hard, get a good job and you know, everything will be fine. I was like, you don't know that. Like, you don't, you don't know that things are not going to change radically and, and the thing that you assume is going to work out might not. Like, what are you going to do if 
everything that you've pinned your your hopes on doesn't work out, right? Like I've always I've always been very wary of that. So I've always felt it's very important to have kind of uh, multiple sources of meaning even. So, you know, you should have like, so it, it's, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to be an investment banker or a startup CEO or whatever it is that gives you meaning and, and um, joy. But like um, you should probably, I, I think you should probably diversify your, your meaning portfolio in a sense. And so that, you know, you should, you should have someone in your life that you care about who doesn't care about any, any of those things that are your primary meaning sources so that if and when that collapses, like you have other ways of, you know, not, not crashing terribly from my life is meaningful to my life is totally meaningless. Yeah. 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 What do you, when it comes to meaning, how do you, uh, I don't want to ask how do you find it, but meaning is, is like, it's a topic of the times in the way with the rise of, of Jordan Peterson and, and, you know, nihilism and just, you know, the despondency with many, which, with which many people seem to interact with the world. We kind of just, a lot of people are kind of zombies in, in a way, um, mm-hmm. their lives perhaps completely devoid of meaning. Um, how do right. you use meaning? Uh, well, from the outside, it seems to me that your life is, is filled with meaning uh, and it oh. guides you in a way. Right. Um, mm-hmm. it's you meaning. And I, th- I think of meaning in this way as well. It's, it's meaning is a, is a signal. It's a flag. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a direction. Uh, so how does meaning in a way guide you and how do you, how, how do you interact with meaning in the world? So, yeah. And, and this is a common theme in how I do a lot of things, which is that I approach it from many different angles. So that again, like if, if my first approach doesn't work out or turns out to be bullshit. I can always just like let that one go and switch to another. Um, I think when I was a teenager, um, I mean, okay, first of all, again, so I I grew up in Singapore and so like my parents are Hindu and I went to like a Anglican Christian kindergarten and I had friends who are Muslim. I have friends who are, who are like Buddhist or Taoist. And so I always witnessed that there were many different people with many different beliefs about, you know, the afterlife or beliefs about spirituality and all that. And, you know, I was reading about ancient Egyptian pharaohs and, and, and ancient Egyptian gods and Roman gods and Greek gods. And I, I was, there was a period of time when I was maybe 10, I was super into all those like Norse pantheons and all that. And it just was always obvious to me that there are many possible stories you can tell. So I think, I, I think, I think about things in terms of story. And so, you know, there are many possible stories you can tell and it's, not clear that anybody has a monopoly on the correct story. And it seems likely that there is no correct story. There's just stories that, that resonate with you. And I think I have come to think of, of stories almost as um, like emotional. Um, I want to say emotional talismans, though I'm not sure if that's the right frame, but basically so you as human beings we can't escape stories like it's how we function beyond the most basic uh, primitive primal ape kind of, yeah. of i think i think um, stories are actually the the um the form through which language and the current uh, yeah yeah it, but it's it's like the you know if we it, it's it's how the information gets packaged it that's resonant yeah, with it's our a brain. currency i think right? yeah 
yeah, it's, it's, yeah. I think stories are probably the currency of of meaning, maybe or meanings. I mean, you you get it. It's, it's there. There are these things that we can play with. I see, I see them as the vessels with. in a way. They're more like vessels. They they carry. They're, they're yeah. things. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. So I guess maybe you could think of meaning as. Um, like so how is it manifest so I, I try to ground things as much as possible and by ground i mean like relate to it personally so I, I i mean i might have had a phase when i was maybe like 17 or 18 when i was interested in like this super abstract kind of uh, hypothetical thought experiment type things but these days i'm i'm always very curious to relate every every idea or curiosity or whatever back to kind of my life and when i say my life i don't necessarily mean like my practical day-to-day life, but just kind of my concept or my relationship with, with everything. And so I think of, um, so you, you, there's no life without story, right? So everybody inherits some stories, whether you like it or not. So you inherit stories about, you know, what nation state you're from, what, what, uh, I, I think everyone inherits these days, like, uh, the basic kind of, uh, capitalist ish, idea of you know you gotta like the, the good life is you have to make enough money that you don't need to depend on other people i mean just you know it, I, I don't want to get too caught up in the details of that because you know people will argue about the specifics and i don't want to i don't want to argue about the specifics so much as point out that you know when we go to school or when even when your parents chose to have kids just every decision happens within a broader framework of a, a kind of patchwork of stories and the what what we get to do if we see it so first you have to see it and once you see it you have to decide that you want to get involved um once you see that everything around you is kind of a, a patchwork of stories you can choose to be deliberate about the stories that you navigate by and you can question the existing stories that you've inherited and i think sometimes you know like so the whole trope of the edgy nihilistic teenager who's kind of like oh the man is out to get me that kind of thing like you know it's almost a necessary um learning phase where you reject your old stories or to try and find uh to try and kind of step outside of your indoctrination or your your inheritance and to try and then reorient yourself and find find stories that that are right for you. Um, although very often what happens is uh, people run out of energy, I think. I think so that there is that beautiful rebellion and then after that they're like, oh, I need to get a job and I need to... Um, life catches up. Move on with my life. Yeah. And then, so when life catches up with you, it's kind of... Um, at some point, people start thinking, I don't have the privilege, I don't have the luxury of thinking about my story anymore. Like, I just... I, I got to pay the bills, I got to get by with my day-to-day life but the thing is when you do that that is it's not like you stop playing and the game is over it's more of like you stop playing and now you have relinquished control of your narrative to whatever is the prevailing narrative of the time and so i approach i i never want to do that so like you know in that way i am I am permanently invested in always being a kind of edgy teenager in a sense. Like I, I never want the, I, I think the day you kind of give up on that is the day you kind of, you die. It's, it's a kind of death. It's yeah. A death, it's a kind of, death it's, of just, yeah. 
you get it, right? It's your, your, your soul has become, uh, you've become a kind of zombie. Or you've be- and, and what frustrates me sometimes is the people who describe this, sometimes they get very um, animated in how like, they, they want to put down other people and be like, oh, you guys are all zombies. You're capitalist zombies. And you're, 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 which I find needlessly antagonistic and dismissive. I think, I think people, you know, like children. So if you watch children playing, like little kids, they are kind of making up stories on the fly with each other, and and it's 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 very silly and small, but it's it's practice for bigger story experimentation, I think. But then you know, once you go to school, and and there's there's that you can you can kind of think of school and corporate life and and like that that kind of space as a homogenization of story. Like everyone is supposed to. Whether like literally or kind of, you know, implicitly, everyone is supposed to, like you get to experiment the stories a little bit on the side, but the main story remains and you have to find your role and your space and your meaning on, and whatever it relative within that main story. And some people find that that's very, some people like it. Some people, I think lots of people. Well, it's because it's easy. It's easy. Yeah, to you like, don't need to think about it. No, no, no. And I think we're at a point in time now where the the story has just like been like the book's been torn into shreds, and right. we're now the cuppets pulled out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's kind of uh, terrifying for for many people, and it, including myself, uh, because suddenly you don't just go to university and get a degree, or you don't just go through the like right. you know, stay on the track and then you live your life. You have kids and you do all this sort of stuff because we now right. have global internet access we can now genetically engineer life we have climate change right. have the fact that you and i can have this conversation and potentially make a living off right. doing ridiculous things online um yeah we have the potential of, of all we, we have so much potential and the opportunity cost yes. of a particular action could be you know who knows what else we could be doing so that mm-hmm. it's kind of just paralyzing in a way and it's terrifying to actually right. i think i think it's terrifying to in a way choose to well, choose to choose, choose to have the, the, the right. choose to, I guess, chart a course through the unknown. Um, right. And we're also kind of punished in a way by society at the moment because we're all living in the old story. Like right. the old story is like in its death throes, whereas right now we're mm-hmm. kind of in the midst mm-hmm. of trying to create a new one. And it's, it's difficult to try and be in that new story, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I'm going to, so there's, it's, um, and the interesting thing is um, people don't realize how fragile the default story has always been because it looks, it looks stable enough. You see banks and schools and buildings and buildings look stable, right? And it's just, you know, <laughs> um, if you haven't read much history, so I, I think one of the things that, so I remember being so scared even and anxious as a teenager and it seemed like most of my friends were not. And now that I look back, I think it's because I was more sensitive to history than, than like, so I was reading about, you know, pharaohs and shit back when I was a child, right? And like, oh, wow, these guys were like, king like you know they built pyramids they were like crazy successful and 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 you know they had their stories and like thousands of years people were kind of uh, you know invested in that and that whole shit is gone like it's just and now it's, it's like ruins and stuff and like you know what who's to say that whatever it is that you know the whole kind of white picket fence middle class life that we have after you know kind of post world war ii life like the idea that it's stable is, it was just never, it was always 
obvious to me that that was not the case. But people are like, oh, you know, why are you being so dramatic? Let's just go and get student <laughs> loans and <laughs> go work in, in the media and then stuff like that. And yeah, and so there's this, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling up some quotes that I have in my notes that I think you might like. So here's a quote from um, Joseph Campbell. Right, ah. who wrote um, the hero of a thousand phases? Yeah. This is a quote. It's a quote about LSD, but it, I, f- I find that you know it also applies to a lot of things. So he says, "Okay, the LSD phenomenon is interesting. It's an intentionally achieved schizophrenia with the expectation of a spontaneous remission, which, however, does not always follow. Um, yoga too is intentional schizophrenia. One breaks away from the world." plunging inwards and the ranges of visions experienced are in fact the same as that of a psychosis. But what is the difference? What's the difference between a psychotic or LSD experience and a yogic or a mystical? The plunges are all into the same deep inward sea of that there can be no doubt. And the symbolic figures encountered are in many instances identical, but there's an important difference. And the difference, to put it sharply, is equivalent to that between a diver who can swim and one who cannot. The mystic endowed with native talents for this sort of thing and following stage by stage the instructions of a master enters the waters and finds he can swim, whereas the schizophrenic, unprepared, unguided, and ungifted has fallen or intentionally plunged and is drowning. Right. So this is Campbell talking about like, you know, like doing like drugs, but it's also, you know, like narrative, depending on how galaxy brain you want to take this, but like, you know, narratives are drugs in a way like they, and in in, in a very literal sense, like, um, I mean, okay, neuroscientist folks might disagree, but like, uh, I'm I'm being kind of hyperbolic here, but like the, the narrative in your head shapes the way you interpret reality and that shapes the way whether you see something as a threat or something as a potential reward and and you know you receive internal you, you self-regulate that, internally that's, based that's, on that's that. actually true we um like how we choose to engage with things that produce anxiety if we choose to engage with them rather than them just happening to us i think uh, there's less of an anxious response and uh right. i interviewed this um meditation researcher at harvard and we basically nice. came to the uh we're discussing about how meditation is in a way a, a means to, it does lots of different things, but one of the things it does is help you craft the lens through which you view the world. And mm. what, we've, what we've learned is that we, we, the world is irreducibly complex. And right. what that means is that we have to filter it in some way, shape or form. Uh, mm-hmm. And our goals dictate that filter and how we select yeah. our goals. The goals that are like in here is actually, I don't think mm-hmm. we know how we do that yet. How do we go from, I want that to really wanting it to the core of your being, but that, yeah. that action or that, that decision or that, um, that change, uh, dictates or change it, it influences how you see the world. And then once you, once, once that happens, then a path can kind of uh, present itself to you. Uh, right or like the, the actions or the, the things that are in the world that can help you get to wherever you want to go. They're always right. there, but now that you're, you, you've changed your yeah. filter in such a way that you can actually see them. Um, right. So I, anyway, just so, yeah, you're, yeah, you're exactly, it's, right. <laughs> exactly that. Right. So it's all, it's all about, um, yeah. So we are all having the same experience effect. I mean, you know, we're all, we're all, we're all inhabiting the same underlying reality, but our subjective experiences are so dramatically different because we have different frames and lenses based on how we interpret the data that we're receiving. And yeah. And so, you know, the challenge 
for and it's quite, it's quite sad sometimes when you meet people who are you know they might be smart they might be you know great on a lot of fronts but they might be trapped in some way because they are holding on to some they're holding on to a little too rigidly to some frame of of how things are and i i mean i think if we all look back on our own kind of life experiences we all also have you know examples of clinging too tightly to some some way of seeing things and you know such that each new thing that comes along it, it you, you confirm your bias and mm. yeah so well, it, i think it, i think we do that because we construct ourselves with these with these ideas and it's yeah, through that yeah. self-construction. If that, if that idea comes under threat, suddenly who we are in some yes, way comes yes. under threat we, I, and we become fragmented. Yeah. yeah. So a big, a big kind of um, step, like kind of a, a transformational step is, is going from... So first of all, you have to recognize that you have a model of reality that is pretty much tied up to your identity. And then you want to start experimenting with alternate models of reality and the challenge is to recognize that there are many models of reality and different models do not necessarily threaten you right like just because like and you can try you can playfully try to experiment with what if what if something else was true what if you know what if everything i've assumed turns out to be wrong and and the challenge is to not is to, to experiment with that while not totally losing your shit, which is, I mean, I get that it's, it's pretty easy for me to say now that I have already kind of um, gotten comfortable with this. But when I look back on my own life and when I, you know, so I get DMs on Twitter from like uh, young people sometimes and they are they're going through a lot of chaos in their heads. And when I look back, and you know, I want to comfort them. But at the same time, when I look back on my own, you know, there are moments that you can, that some people describe as like the dark night of the soul, right? The collapse of all meaning. And then you realize that, oh shit, everything that you thought was meaningful is subjective. And so what is, what is anything, right? And it's just, and I, I think that, you know, it's almost maybe in a, unavoidable, like if you want to get to the point where you are comfortably surfing on the waves, you almost have no choice maybe, but to some have experiences where you feel like you're drowning and it the, the the anxiety and fear that that comes with that is very very real and I'm not sure if there's anything that can like ultimately you have to face that yourself like um if you're lucky you may have uh, a peer or a mentor that you can trust who will you know they, they might like hold your hand like literally or metaphorically they might just be there with you and say hey like I know like it feels like your world is collapsing right now but and it's correct what you're feeling like that it, not not to dismiss your feelings like your feelings are valid but like i've been there before and i came out of it and it will pass for you as well like like that can be somewhat reassuring but also not you know it's still, ultimately the dark night of the soul is completely dark and you really kind of go through that that desperate anxious thing yourself i mean i i i i pendulum back and forth on this i i yeah. i feel like Having done reading and knowing that other people have been through it and come out the other side stronger for it and kind of better adjusted definitely allowed me to go through it better. But at the same time, yeah, that's, that's, I think that's the limit of what you can do for someone else going through that. And, and, the chat, and you have to be careful well, not you to You don't like, want to rob them of, and of their experience as well. You don't want to save yes, them in a way yeah. because some of these, these experiences can be so formative and teach you lessons that... Right. Really. And, and if, right. And, and kind of the, the, the guru paradox or the guru trap is if you provide too much structure and guidance, then they are just 
you know, they are going through the experience holding your hand and it's like, now what's happened is that they've discarded their old meaning model, but now they've, they've, they've imprinted on you, right? So what's Which that I saying? Is, like a calm sea has never made a good sailor or, or something like that? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And so the, the, the thing that sometimes I, I'm, I sometimes joke with my friends, like my friends sometimes joke with me that, hey, you're going to end up becoming like a guru figure on, on Twitter because of what you're doing. And like kids come to me and like, oh, like you seem to have it all figured out. And I have to be like, no, dude, I'm just some guy. Like, like don't like, you know, like um, thank you for your, for your kind you know, um, for seeing what I do and appreciating it. I appreciate that. But like, you have to be careful right now because if you start to kind of pedestalize someone else, that's, that's a way of kind of almost, almost abdicating your own responsibility for your own meaning making. It's like, Oh, here's this really smart guy. Here's this Elon Musk or this, this Nassim Taylor or this, you know, whoever these guys are and they are good at what they do and they have whatever, but like there's this danger of thinking that some, you know, some red hat or pink hat or some something you can wear and uh, put on a badge and like, you know, I'm, I'm done. Like I have, I have now found meaning in life by subscribing to this other <laughs> worldview. Like that's very dangerous and it becomes, you know, it's something that you always have to be vigilant to uh, avoid, I think, in, I believe. Yeah. So um, this conversation reminds me of a, a thread or something of yours. I can't remember it specifically, but it was along the lines of you going through some sort of, uh, how would you, how would I describe it? Like a, a reinvention every six months or so, like something seems to happen <laughs> yeah. for some reason. And you, it, it's not really, you don't bring it about. It's not something like you, you know, click open a, a template that you've got and like, all right, time to reinvent myself. Let's go through step one to 10. There may be something uh, going on inside that like, brings this, brings this about. Um, so can you talk to me a bit about that? Because I think, uh, a lot of people probably go through the same thing and how do you, what have you learned from this? Um, what's, what's been your, what, what's, what has it been like to be constantly becoming over the past <laughs> you know, 29 years? Oh, I, I, I love it. So, you know, again, the thing that I've, one of my deepest fears again is kind of, uh, not living. Right. So like, uh, look like imagine like you kind of go to work and you come home and you watch TV and you go to bed and then you go to work and you, you know, you do that like a little bit and you're like, I'm tired. I don't have time to kind of take stock of my life. I don't have time to do like wild, crazy things. So I'll do it next month. I'll do it next year maybe. And then you look down you look up and holy shit, you're like 20 years older now. And like you're in your fifties or sixties. Like that's, that's my nightmare scenario. Like, holy shit. Like just without paying much attention, you kind of, accidentally drifted off and your whole life is uh, like, you know, substantial parts of your life have, have, have kind of uh, fallen out of your conscious attention. And I mean, I look back on my life and there are like little pockets of time here and there where I'm like, holy shit, what was I doing from, you know, ages 23 to 25? I mean, I, I do have, I, this is why I journal obsessively so that I can always kind of look back and not feel like, wow, life kicked me around and I wasn't, and you do that I wasn't there for my own. Uh, not, not daily. I, mean, I tweet daily so I can, <laughs> I can look back at my tweets and kind of figure it out. I, I try to journal. Um, at this point, so I, I have had periods of time where like, I'm like, okay, I'm going to journal every single day for 30 days or whatever. And I have experimented with those exercises. So I have a good enough relationship with myself at this point that I can kind of just improvise and then trust myself to figure it out. But like, um, yeah, what I was getting at with that was, uh, you know, sometimes people say things like, um, 
my dad wasn't in my life or, or you know, like kind of uh, my, my partner doesn't pay attention to me or, you know, like uh, there's, there's, this, there's that class of, of thing, like somebody wasn't there for his, he was at his child's game, but he was on his phone, you know, that kind of thing. And I actually think about that first and foremost, like in the context of our own lives, like you seldom hear from people, um, literally like I wasn't there for my own life, but it's a thing that happens to a lot of people. And if you read like, uh, like deathbed regrets, I think the number one deathbed regret is people saying, I wish I had the courage to live a life that was true to who I am. And so you re- they regret all the things that they didn't do and they regret the, the kind of, um, the, I guess when you're going to die. When you, yeah. Like, so if you find out that, Hey, uh, tonight's your last night on earth, you're like, Holy shit. All the times I, you know, wh- why did I not do all the things like worried what other people are thinking from that? Like, you know? <laughs> so yeah, so that's my main worry. And so, you were asking about like the reinvention thing. Um, I don't know if I would use the phrase reinvention per se. Um, how would I describe it? It's like an evolution it's just, perhaps, like a, a burning away yeah. of the old and a attaching of the new in some, in some way. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I, I have many small experiences like these. I, I, I'm careful. I'm a little bit wary not to, to avoid kind of um, over constructing like this very, elegant narrative of like, you know, like, Oh, I've hero's journey. And I went there. Yeah. I mean, so sometimes I, sometimes I experiment with like micro stories. So for example, like I went to San Francisco this year in May and it was a wonderful experience for me. And like in the context of my life, like my, my personal story, like, you know, I spent most of my life in Singapore. I've visited around Southeast Asia. I've been to India. I've been to like Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, but this is my first time traveling across to the other side of the planet and I was meeting friends and I was alone and it was just, it fit very nicely into like a very formative, almost spiritual experience. And so I do, I do allow myself to enjoy that story. Like, Oh wow. Like, you know, I'm like Cinderella going to the ball or, you know, this is my, this is my kind of, I've made it in life when finally I get to, you know, see the other side of the world. Like, so I do let myself enjoy that. I, I don't believe in being like some kind of harsh stoic that, doesn't enjoy things like what's the point of it right so i do enjoy that but at the same time i try to so you know kind of like post credits scene is you know sure at the same time it's it's also just another experience and you can have more experiences and you don't need to get super invested in one particular story you know what i think the simplest way to describe this is actually i navigate by boredom and so when i get bored of something i just turn it off and, and go to something else. And I think that's actually the most reliable, useful way for me to approach this. So sometimes people, you know, like you ever follow someone on, on Twitter or somewhere else and they're like a mega celebrity maybe. And you, they have a few good ideas, but like after like a year of following them, you're like, oh, this guy's saying the same shit he said last year. And then you get bored. And like, I, I, I think that happens to myself. So I, I'm, I'm, I am my own I'm like my audience zero, right? I'm the first guy who's reading my stuff. And like when I start to get bored of my stuff, I'm like, you know, I, I believe that it's very precious and important to, like when you get bored of something, like your, your taste is telling you that this is not worth your time anymore or it's not interesting anymore. And that's like very, very, very precious thing. And so I think of, it's just, so my process of reinvention or whatever, it's, you know, if I, if I wake up thinking, when am I going to reinvent myself next? I think that's almost, you're almost um, 
trying too hard to make something happen and it, mm. then it'll elude you so maybe. My, I was more thinking about what, so my, my point was more along the lines of what do you, what led to those, what do you think led to those, those crises in a way and how then did you move past them or what was it, what are the sorts of things that you did? And I guess you're saying that it was actually boredom with what you were doing and that you realized that there were other, yeah, it could be a Right. It could be a different class of boredom. It could be like, so frustration is a kind of boredom in a way. I mean, they're all, they're all kind of related anxiety, yeah. I guess. So yeah. it's, it's really, it's really about being sensitive to your own feelings. And I think, you know, it, I, I sometimes tell people like, um, like, so the, the three things that you need, I think, uh, uh, sensitivity to, which is to make sense of inputs, um, smarts, which is to process those inputs and strength, which is to take action based on those inputs. And very broadly, most people understand that it's good to be smart. And most people understand that it's good to be strong, like in those kind of cargo culty, like, oh, you're so smart. Oh, you're so strong. But like you, you seldom hear people think of sensitivity as a, as a virtue or a value. But like, you know, at the heart of all of this, I think it is, it is sensitivity as in, as in being attuned to your own feelings. And, you know, when you learn to be sensitive to other people's feelings, then you can almost have, it's almost like a social superpower. Like you can tell when someone is, you may figure out when someone is having a bad day, even before they realize it. Cause you notice that, yeah. Hey, like you might ask, Hey, you're frowning. Why are you frowning? They're like, Oh, I guess, you know, and then people want, people are drawn to you. But yeah, so you're asking about like, how do you navigate um, those things? It's, I love those it's, three S's, uh, by the way. I think those are those are quite right. profound. Yeah, yeah. Yes, the three it's S's. Favorite, uh, it's, it's a wonderful list. You know, it's 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 made yeah. for the internet. Right. Yeah, I have a thread, obviously. Of course. But, um, <laughs> um, with regards to re, like kind of reinvention, I'm 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 sure like um, Campbell again probably has some good stuff on this, which is kind of um, you know, so. Again, all of these are kind of narrative challenges. Like um, the reality, like you said, reality is irreducibly complex. But like um, we need narratives and we need kind of, I think a, a tiny letter that I sent out recently and email this was, um, I asked my friends the question, how do you divide the chapters of your life? Because you can, you know, you can make it like this to this, or you can even make it into like three. It could be, you could split the same same five years into like, before this and after this, or you could make it, you know, the first and a half year, second and a half year, third and a half. So how you choose to divide things is something I think you can even, you know, you may not even know what the correct, if there's even a correct um, division, but you may not know what the correct division points are until like much later on. So I would say, um, I try to be experimental. I try to be sensitive. Um, but do you try to be sensitive I mean, or do you find that you're already just sensitive as it is? I feel like you were born with an, uh, a Oh no, I, I, I don't think so at all. So I, I am not a naturally sensitive person. Like my sensitivity is very much uh, self-taught. So like I, when I was young, I was very, you know, so like I grew up in contexts where being sensitive was, was definitely a weakness. I think where I was, where I was from. And, um, I, I would say like a lot of the confusion and stress of my teenage years were, I didn't know what I was feeling even. And, and even so, even that I, I left my be because you weren't sensitive. It could be because that you were so sensitive that you were dissociating from the, the feelings that, that were, that were there. 
Oh yeah, that's that's a valid frame. So it depends on how you want. So I, I I have a similar it. a similar story in that I don't really remember feeling much in a way for for a number of years, and then in my early twenties, perhaps it was cannabis use or psychedelics, or just like relationships that really kind of like unlocks emotion and mm-hmm. and feeling in the world, it's like really right. engaging with the world from a from a from a deeper place. Um, right. So I, I'm just I'm commenting on that because I see as that's I've had a similar sort of uh, yeah story there. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So I mean, so in that regard, I think most human beings are actually, you know, kind of like so. There's, there's like the fundamental first order sensitiveness that probably is pre pre conscious, right? It's probably just you know, like you 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 you're someone's maybe having a fight. Like maybe your parent, like so, if you're a child and your parents are fighting in the next room, and you can't even really hear what they're saying, you just sense that there's aggression there, and you start tensing up, and you don't even know why you're tensing up. So, so in that sense, your body is sensitive to your environment, but you may not consciously know that's what you're feeling, and you may at some level be invested in not knowing or not admitting this to yourself. So you might be distracting yourself by playing video games or, or something, and so in that regard. Um, so I would say that, that there's that kind of basal sensitivity and then there's a kind of conscious awareness. And um, so I didn't have the conscious awareness. So mm. if you're asking, am I kind of basal more or less sensitive? Uh, I, I guess I'm probably more sensitive than the median, but I wouldn't say I'm like a peak sensitive top no. 5%, top 10%. I'm probably like maybe top 40%-ish. And for a long time, I was very not conscious about it. I was very invested in being the cool guy who wasn't faced by anything. And, you know, so I I spent years trying to be cool, like trying to be unfazed. And I can still do that if I want to. Like I I got good at it, right? So, and I got very good at not not letting shit affect me visibly and you know I can you can cope with it however you have to cope with it separately but um I realized that that's a very shitty way to I mean when you do that you don't the, the friends that you make when you are in that kind of headspace slash um when that's your identity I'm the guy who's cool and doesn't get faced you end up making friends with other cool guys and not a lot, very few women by the way I find and um yeah, it's just like that. Like whatever game you're playing, you will end up kind of being drawn to other people playing the same game, and you may find that uh, it's not fun being around those people. Whereas on the other hand, like there's this crowd of empathetic, sensitive, vulnerable people who you know sometimes they get too sensitive and sometimes they get too vulnerable. But I find that as a net group, I prefer, I mostly prefer to be mostly around the sensitive group of people more because the, the relationships tend to be more sincere, more honest, more open. But yeah, it was very often when I'm with my sensitive friends, I'm like, okay guys, like, sure. I, I respect your feelings and everything, but we should also, you know, like if you're kind of going, if you're getting a little bit too, you know, you're, you're deliberately drowning in your sorrows again and again, like sometimes we should kind of pull back and like, let's go and let's go for a walk. Let's go and, lift some weights, let's do something. And then with my kind of cold, badass friends, I'm like, all right, yeah, you're a bad motherfucker, sure. But like, you know, like why don't we talk about something, you know, like, I mean, I wouldn't literally say talk about, talk to me about your feelings because that usually doesn't work. But I might be like, what's your favorite movie? Why did it move you? You know, that kind of thing. Like, I just want to, I always want more, I guess. I always want to engage more deeply with the world. And so I'm always trying to find ways to connect with people and with ideas and with everything, basically. 
Mm. We have drifted very far from whatever the question was. Yeah, no, no, that's uh, that's, that's sensitive. Fine. Yeah, that's been the the, the conversation, the theme of uh, our conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's an appropriate time to talk about ADHD because uh, <laughs> given <laughs> that we're going everywhere. Wonderful. Yeah. Yes. So um, I have been look reading a lot about it over the past year or so because I thought I had it for a while and then I really thought I had it last year, got diagnosed a couple of weeks ago. It's not like a I'm not using it as a badge of honor or anything, but just something that uh, the way I see it, like the story of my life was shattered and then mm -hmm. I put it back together in a more coherent way, in a way that makes more sense. Nice. Um, yeah. And just seeing you on Twitter, just as an observer, I'm like, yeah, this guy, like he's, he's similar to me in, in these regards. Like, I wonder if he's got ADHD. And then you know, when I was doing some research yeah. for this, I thought, oh yeah. Um, so you, I think you do from, from what I remember. So I've, yeah. So I've, yeah, so I talk, have never just talk to actually, you about that. right. So I've never actually gotten a diagnosis because I don't, um, I don't know. I just prefer not getting diagnosed, but I have a friend who is a professional ADHD coach. So she got diagnosed a long time ago and she has been working with lots and lots of people professionally who have been diagnosed. And I mentioned to her, Hey, uh, and I think, I think I might have ADHD. And she laughed. She was like, dude, you have like the strongest case I've ever seen. <laughs> I'm like, okay, <laughs> that I, I trust her judgment based on her experiences working. With so she, I mean, she's not a clinical specialist, she's but, clinical she works with but she's, yeah. 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 And you know, like, the it's it's so easy to if you wanted to game the tests to confirm your your belief you can I mean you get it um yeah I I never even considered that I might have ADHD until I think I met my boss at my previous company which was I was like twenty three by then so like throughout my schooling years like no teacher ever suggested to me that I might have ADHD they're just like oh why are you so unruly why are you so distracted all the time why are you not paying attention you're smart why can't you focus like and, and the assumption in Singapore is like if you can't focus it's because you're you're you know like a stubborn naughty child yeah um but yeah so you know I've been doing a lot of reading about it over the years and I have pretty strong feelings about this and I don't feel compelled to be very scientific about it. So I, I'm, I'm comfortable kind of just uh, ranting and raving about it. And so I say things sometimes like, uh, I don't really have ADHD. I have, uh, you know, sometimes I joke, I don't have attention deficit. I have attention surplus because, you know, and I, and I don't, and what I might actually have is more of a obedience deficit rather than, you know, so I, I, I try to experiment with these frames because I think, the frame, is, the frame is terrible, the, the existing one, ADHD. Yeah. But. <laughs> yeah, so attention deficit hyperactive disorder. Yeah, it's, it's a, there's no fun. Right? No, and Whether you have it or not. It's characterized by attention deficit in some instances, but hyper-focus in others. Like I, I, yeah. if yeah. I'm doing something I'm interested in, like video games, right. books, uh, conversations yeah. I've found of really where I like really enjoy, where I can just pay 100% attention. Um, it's I speaking of such things, I just lost it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but exactly right. So it's uh it's I I choose to be deliberately um playful, irreverent, and you know, because because I think there's the, the, the mainstream conversation around it is almost uh there's it has this kind of slightly like a there's undertones of of like disability talk. Which again, so I, I have acquaintances who are from like 
disabled communities and and mental health communities, and I, I don't want to speak on their behalf because it's it's I, I can't relate that. But like I, I do remember my boss once talking to me about it, and he said, um, you know, Visa. He said it's like it's like you struggle to walk, but you have wings, and I'm like, yeah. So does that make me? Is that a disorder? Is it a disorder to? You know, like not be able to do what most people can do easier than you, but to be able to do like crazy shit. Like, you know, is that is that a, a disorder? Like, you know, then it you, you then investigate the whole premise of what a disorder is altogether, right? It's context dependent. Like, you know, what is disordered in in the stable frame? Like in some other context, it's a it's a gift, right? So it's it's very, and you know, like I joke sometimes things like you know the the solution to ADHD is you just need like personal assistance, like you just need wealth, <laughs> right? You just need like it's it's, and so it's yeah, it's very very context dependent, and again, like it, this goes back to what we were talking earlier about like um, rigid stories and rigid frames and. ADHD seems like very much a disorder if the only way to succeed in life is to go to school and pay attention and, and do your homework and all those things. But like, you know, if it leads you to experimenting with crazy things and building amazing things for the world, then, and if you read up about like, uh, I can't remember where I was reading this, but something about just, I think in like, shaman shamans and and like medicine men and like those kind of people they they can't they, they seem pretty adhd ish like they are kind of you know they like early on they are in in their communities they're kind of talent scouted for being the weird kids that are kind of drifting off into their own worlds yeah and so they get they get honored by their community to be like oh you're clearly not you're clearly like half of you is in this world and half of you is in the spirit world and like you your 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 role in society is to go into the desert or go into the wilderness and and find you know the tre- spiritual treasures and bring them back to civilization and share them with us translate it to uh, you know like that's that's cool i i do feel like in some ways you know uh, i think Amanda, I've been I've been following Amanda Palmer recently, and she is an interesting character in this. Trip. So she is a she's a, a singer, a perf, like a performance artist. Um, she's married to Neil Gaiman, and she is uh, she's known for her crowdfunding. So she's she's like very crowdfunded. I think she's like thirteen thousand patrons or something, and she she used to do things like. Um, She's just, so she's a, she's like a raw nerve. Like she's super, you know, she has, she sings about like miscarriages and abortions and, and like just very balls to the wall kind of a blood splatter kind of um, very intense artist. And yeah, I, I look at her and I think oh, I'm a huge fan. I mean, I mean, I'm, I, I'm not like, I haven't studied her work in detail. But I just see what she's doing and I'm a big fan of, of the way she carries herself. And it's very easy to see that if we were in like a tribe or some kind of like pre-civilization environment, she would very obviously be the, like a priestess of some kind. Like she's, yeah, she's just mesmerizing. She's like this larger than life, colorful creature. And yeah, you know, it, it makes sense that people like that exist now as well. And, and just there's, there's stuff. Of, and you know, so school is like this industrial process that sorts people out into like mechanistic cog type things. And so school does not uh, kind of identify who the artists are and who the who are meant for those roles. And I think it's pretty clear that those roles are necessary in society. 
And yeah, so, you know, the podcasters and the, the filmmakers and, and all those people, they need, they need to be directed by their taste. So there's this, there's this Elizabeth Gilbert um, TED Talk that I revisit. So she's the one who wrote um, Eat, Pray, Love. And she has a TED Talk about um, the history of genius. So in the past, there were, you know, in like, I think Roman times, Greek times, and other cultures as well, people used to think, of, you know, like the idea of the muse or the idea of like the genie, like, you know, like that, that creatives are not entirely responsible for their work because they get visited upon by, by God or by some spirits or genius or whatever. And, you know, again, like that is kind of like when I think about the experience of ADHD or what ADHD is like to me, it, it sometimes it's like that. Like I, you know, I have a, I have a joke Twitter account called Visa brain where I, I kind of tweet in that voice of that other part of my, my mind where, you know, so Visa Brain is this character who does whatever the fuck he wants, does not listen to me. Like, you know, so it's not like I get to choose what he does. I mean, at, at the most, I get to veto a thought. Maybe <laughs> I get to not tweet what he said. That, that's like the most, the most that I can do. So you know, I'm like, it's like a, it's like a angry, it's like a crazy horse and I'm riding it and like, I can try my best to, no, don't fly off the cliff. Let's not, kill people but like when he's interested in something and if halfway he decides that he's interested in something else I have no fucking control over that and that's a good thing I believe it's good that I am not he is not constrained by my assumptions right like so I might start a Twitter thread that's like hey I'm gonna talk about um, chili sauce and then halfway through doing the thread researching chili sauce, he decides that, hey, we are now in the middle of like Spanish history and here there is an, something far more interesting than chili sauce. So we're going to diverge now to talk about colonialism in, Spain, in Spanish colonialism of South America. And, you know, so I, as, I become, as I develop my own executive function, I get, to, I get to kind of interrupt him a little bit and be like, hey, do you want to put a pin in this for... Maybe and and very often the answer is no, but like uh, so what I get to do, what I have learned to do over time is accept that I cannot really control that process and accept that that process is is directed by taste, which is I don't have entire conscious control over what the taste is, and it's basically it's right. I think um, Paul Graham has an essay about how he writes essays, and he says that at every point you just flow interesting. So like a river flows downhill by, you know, it goes this way and then it's like, okay, this is the easier way to go. This is the easy way to go. And he says that, you know, to write a good essay, like you have to flow interesting. So you, from here, whatever is the most interesting thing, you go there, then you go there and maybe you find a dead end and then you got to go back and then find the next interesting thing. And so the most, the coolest essays aren't necessarily like a straight line from here to here. It might be that you got to go to this interesting kind of um, side path and then you come there and that's a far more interesting journey and so the child and I think the thing about genius the thing about ADHD ish you know even the terminology I'm not so sure about but like there some people seem to have much more of like a powerful entity within themselves that goes after what that entity thinks is interesting and we are trained to feel like guilt and shame and, and whatnot for not sticking to the matter of hand because we have, you know, we have... Uh, it's not, in air quotes, productive. It's not 
Yeah, but but so you know, the, and and the thing the thing I always tell people about productivity is, you know, I have I have I've collected a lot of anecdotes about this. So you know, when when Steve Jobs was dicking around with Wozniak, and they used to want to prank people, and so they learned how to make blue boxes, and blue boxes are like these things that kind of um, mimic the sound of. Like, so the way telephones used to work was that there's a bunch of sounds and it uses the sounds like a security verifying thing. I don't know the specifics. But basically him and Wozniak were dicking around and trying to prank people and then fool around and doing very unproductive things. They were, they were not, you know, trying to make a product. They were just trying to have fun. And they figured out a way to kind of like hack so-called um, like uh, telephone infrastructures. And there's a jobs code. I can send it to you later if you want. It's... um. He basically says that Apple would not exist if not for the fact that they had that experience manipulating billions of dollars of telephone infrastructure. And so, you know, if, if, you, want, if you want an iPhone, you need a couple of hippie nerds to hack shit for the fun of it. Like, that's, that's how product, like, you know, we, if you think that, you know, productivity means kind of sitting down and grinding every day, like, that's a very narrow downstream view of productivity that's kind of a, you know, if you're uh, if you're working in the factory making iPhones, yeah, sure. But like, if you want them to invent the the all the way at the top, like that's a crazy guy who did crazy shit. Who needs a, you need the crazy people at the, at the start, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you- I, I have tons of stories like this. Like Richard Feynman has a story about how he was you know trying to do work in physics and he was trying to solve some problem and he just did, his heart wasn't in it. He couldn't do it and he was struggling every day. And then eventually he was just kind of sitting in the cafeteria and he saw some guy like spinning trays in the cafeteria and he is like, why does it? Why is it that when the tray spins, the outside seems to be spinning faster than the inside? And then you know, it's it's a dumb, pointless question, but like he stuck with it. It's like I want to know. And then he just he used his physics knowledge to explore, explore, and eventually he found like some spiral equation thing, and he showed it to his colleagues, and his colleagues were like, okay, what's the point of that? And he's like, it's interesting. That's the point. And then he just kept doing it, and eventually he got to some stuff that he won the Nobel Prize for. But the thing is, he wasn't trying to win the Nobel Prize. He was just having fun. It's just curious. Asking, letting his He's letting his curiosity drive, right? So the yeah, challenge for us yeah. is to let is to let the curiosity drive, but to not get into accidents, right? So I do, I do, you know, I I am mindful of both. So depending on who I'm talking to, sometimes if I'm talking to people who are like incredibly scared of taking risks, I'm like, dude, you have to let creativity drive. But sometimes if I'm talking to someone who's like super strangely um, have has like is strangely fearless in like an unhealthy way, I'll be like, okay, like. It's good to take risks, but you should, you know, like your job as the custodian of that trickster animal animal spirit is to kind of, you know, like make Pull sure the they back don't a little go bit. off the rails. Yeah, 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 yeah. So one of the problems with having such scattered attention or interests mm-hmm. is that when you're doing something um, that requires sustained effort for a long period of time, you can get bored with that, and you may end up having, in my case, dozens of unfinished projects. And one of your, one of the things that you, I've seen you write about is about bring, being prolific. Uh, and mm-hmm. you are quite prolific. Um, you're on your way yes. to a million words. Uh, mm-hmm. I think you're what, like 75% of the way there or something like that since the past few years, yeah. 77. Yep. So how do you navigate the balance between creation and how do you stop yourself from perfectionist tendencies or how does one be prolific? 
when, 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 you, oh, when, yeah. when so, you're constrained in a way by this, well, not constrained, but when you've got this fractured attention or like when you're, when you're on this, this crazy horse. Right. Um, so my, my, the only, the only reason to restrain the horse is to prevent um, harm, like to prevent, like if you're about to say something like cruel and vindictive, like, cause you know, it's, it's a, the, that crazy mind has no ethics and no moral, like, you know, it's the kind of shit that says, you know, like let's, yeah, let's, so, so the only reason to restrain it is to prevent like cruelty to others or, or like harm or, you know, like to, if your thing says, let's withdraw all our money from the bank and go and buy a car, like, eh, you know, like <laughs> it, you have to, you have to stop it from doing that kind of crazy shit. But apart from that, like you should comp- I believe that you should let the horse run wherever the hell it wants. And your job is to take notes of the journey. Like, so you want to, ma- you want to kind of like map out, you know, you only need to spend like a few minutes actually. Like so, like you should you should write down your guess of where you think it's gonna go because it's always interesting to see where where how you are wrong, and then you should write down at the end. So like you know, let's say you set out today, you say I'm gonna edit the podcast today, and then the next four hours you spend in the weeds reading about audio engineering for some reason. Right? You should not feel bad about that. Rather, you should you should write in your journal or whatever. Today I researched audio engineering for four hours when I meant to do that, and here's the interesting thing about audio engineering. Um, one, two, three points, whatever's on your mind. And then like accept that. And then the next day, you know, it's unlikely that you're going to go back to audio engineering again. You might, you know, so it's, it's, you don't know for sure, but you just keep track of it. And it's, maybe, you know, at some level, tags. your job is... You've got those mental meta tags uh-huh. of where to go when you're... Yes, exactly. You to, yeah. And you may... F- yeah, so if you just do that kind of bookkeeping and you don't need to spend hours on it, like just a few minutes of bookkeeping. It could be that, you know, one week in you realize, oh shit, maybe I'm supposed to be an audio engineer. <laughs> you know, you don't know yet. But <laughs> so if you just keep track of that for, I mean, for, if you do it for like a year, like you'll be sold and you'll do it for the rest of your life. Because like that, that meta knowledge is super useful in helping you understand where your horse is going, kind of. And, and the cool thing is, um, you know, and I've, I've basically tested this hypothesis for myself, which is that, you know, sometimes people say, oh, I'm so random. I'm so fragmented. Like uh, I can, I, 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 I care about too many things. I believe you can, you can test that hypothesis and you will be proven wrong because eventually you circle back to the same things. Like nobody is capable of being so infinitely random that they never come back to the same thing twice. And so as long as you've kind of kept a little bit of notes along the way, of where you've been, when you come back, you can build off of where you were before. And so it's like, it can be a very key. So if you imagine like a map, right. And you could be taking like this crazy windy walk around the map, but like, as long as you keep the path of your, you, so you want to, you want to see the line of where you went. And Mm. maybe after a while you notice that, Oh, like your path is like, you're going around in a big circles and then you circle around this little area a lot. And then you go around a big circle again and they circle around this little, little area a lot. And because now you have the notes from the last time you were there, you may realize that, Oh, actually that's, that's an interesting topic there that I should do a blog post about or a podcast about or something like that. And once you have that, then that like, you know, it like unlocks new options around. So the challenge is really just the, to map the path that your crazy mind took. And mm. people struggle with this because they feel guilty about it. I mean, one of the best things I've written was like a essay about Mean Girls, which is like a, you know, like a very, none of my friends expected me like to write an essay about the TV, Mean Girls. Like the, the movie. The oh, movie, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's super popular. It's got like hundreds of thousands of views and it helped me make friends with people that I never imagined would. You know, so it's, I've made friends with people in tech when I was working in tech 
because they read my Mean Girls essay, which is funny because I was trying to get to the attention of those people by writing daily, like, you know, the same boring shit they were reading every day. But yeah, when I wrote about like a movie, people were like, oh, that's an interesting, oh, this guy works in tech. And, you know, like, so it's kind of, again, like there's no way I could have known that in advance that writing a movie about like a trashy chick lit film was going to get me attention from those guys. And so, but, but the way you can kind of, so once you zoom out and have a few years of experience of doing this, you realize that again, it's like, if you went after something, it's because some part of you was interested in that. And that interest is like the most valuable currency in the world. Like you can't buy it. You can't, you can't cheat it. Like it's either you're interested or you're not. And you have to be honest with yourself about what you're interested in. And like, again, your conscious mind can lie to you. Your conscious mind can be like, I need to, you know, like find the most prestigious person and interview them. But then your other part of your mind is like, there's this weird guy down the street who just makes me laugh every week. And I want to talk to him. Like you should, you should let your horse go yeah. to that guy because that's, that's the strange thing that will, you know, it's, and, and once you, once you kind of recalibrate this way, life becomes a lot more surprising which is fun. Like, it's like, you never know in advance where your horse is going to take you. So once you know that it's not going to kill you and you can, you know, survive enough, then it's like, all right, horsey, where are we going to go? And you're like, I think I'm going to, today I think I'm going to research this. And then like halfway through, you're like, oh, I guess this is where we're going today. And then so where does your horse take track you? Of. Well, so right now I, you know, I, I told myself that I wanted to write an essay about aesthetics and I have like a draft of it and I've been working on it. But so what is at some level, mean? it's static. What, what, what is it like? Ah, so, the uninitiated. I mean, so aesthetics is in, in like my definition of aesthetics is um, it's, it's a system of, it's an internally consistent system of, of, um, of beauty, I guess, or a, a system of, of what is good and what is right. And so, you know, like um, you could say everything can potentially be the seed of a whole system of aesthetics. So like, you know, there's like, like um, Alien, the movie, there's a whole aesthetic around that of like fear and, and um, you know, the anxiety. It's, what's a good way to explain this? Um, yeah, every most good movies have some aesthetic about them. Um, most good video games also have some aesthetic about them. Would you say aesthetic is like this intangible thing that this, it's like a a characteristic they may not be able to put your finger on, but it's defining and it's, it's, it's some sort of quality that is emergent and you can't, you couldn't codify it. You couldn't write it down as like a, right. A set of like, you can't write it out, but you you can try. Yeah. You can try to come up with like a phrase or a sentence or like a brief of what it's, what it is like and what it's not like. But the cool thing is that it's, it's um, something that can adapt and evolve. So like you, you could start out with one kind of aesthetic and it starts to drift a little bit in a certain way. But um, you know, I, I think the phrase that I enjoyed using was um, uh, an aesthetic is almost, it's, it's like a cinematic universe, right? So imagine like you, 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 you have a really nice black and white scarf, right? Like just beautiful. Someone gave you a very, very nice black and white scarf and you got it and you're like, oh, wow. Like I like this black and white aesthetic. And then you're like, hmm, maybe like I want to hang the scarf on my door or something. And then you look around and you're like, hmm, a, a, a chair that matches the scarf would be nice. And it, it may not necessarily be also black and white. Maybe it'll be black or white, you know, but like, you're like, hmm. And then accidentally you start building out this whole aesthetic around, like now you realize your whole room has that kind of bizarre, and, you, and maybe towards the yeah, it started out with the scarf, but now your whole room is, is black and white. And there are many different kinds of black and white aesthetics. So it might be a comic book style black and white, or it might be, uh, you know, some kind of weird, um, 
like a like a photocopy machine glitch kind of black and white. Like you know, and and you may not know where you're going with the aesthetic when you started, but like by each each new thing that you introduce to that aesthetic space, it's like it's like songwriting. Maybe like adding another riff or adding another piece of something. It kind of modifies the whole vibe a little bit and then so it's, it's like playing with vibes and i make the case that you know just as so so far I, I tend to talk to people about this in terms of fashion or in terms of visual aesthetics because that's kind of very easy to see what's less easy to see is that every visual aesthetic also implies an intellectual aesthetic and 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 uh an ethical aesthetic maybe even uh you know so everybody is embodying some set of aesthetics at some so it's 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 very intertwined with story as well so like the story you tell is is tied up in your aesthetics and and how you tell the story is a form of the aesthetics the objects you use the the colors you know so i like for when i started work in 2013 um all of my t-shirts were black and white it wasn't a super deliberate choice but like i was just kind of of um I don't know. I, I didn't want to think about my clothes, I guess. And I wanted it to be as simple as possible. But now I'm like, I try to have, you know, bold blues and greens and yellows and reds. And, and it's, it's just, uh, I try to introduce as much color as possible into my wardrobe. And I, I don't know where exactly I'm going with it. I just know that I don't want to be the guy always wearing black and white t-shirts. And, and just, you know, once I'm already wearing blue and gold and what, what a colorful t-shirts, I start to find that, um, and, you know, it, it, it feels a little, it's very, very subtle, but it feels like I'm a bit more vibrant as a person, even. It's very, very subtle. And, and then um, people talk to me slightly differently. It's, it's, and all these, they're all micro adjustments. And, like, it'll be weird to tell someone, like, oh, I changed the colors of my shirt and now my whole life is different. But in a sense, that is true. It's just, it's, it was the kind of, like, like micro shift that then you shift the next one degree shift now but like you know in a a thousand kilometers you could be very very far from where you were initially exactly exactly yeah right yeah yeah so you know i i have like i've been collecting jewelry and and i when i was in san francisco i painted i painted my nails and that was you know like people would talk to me all the time like women would chat me up saying oh i love your nails and you know it's just it's such a interesting but again, I'm talking entirely about fashion and I, I would say, you know, like, so there's... And the most salient examples in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So um, when I, I used to go to this um, flotation club, I mean, so it's a, it's a sensory, it's a place that offers, uh, you can pay cash to spend like an hour or two, an hour and a half in sensory deprivation tanks. So these are like uh, floating, there's Epsom salt in the water and you can lie in the bathtub and close the lid and you just kind of meditate or float. And... Uh, it was a very peaceful experience for me. Like it's just, it's very kind of Zen kind of chill. And you know, like you get to be alone with your thoughts in the middle of the day and it's pitch black. And it's, it's a, I recommend it to anybody who wants to try it. And I remember the first time I had that experience, I stepped out and there was, um, you know, like I, I remember so much about that experience. Like I remember the place that it was. I remember the plants they had outside. It has this very, like the, the floor was like polished concrete, and it's very big open space with like uh, big glass windows and the sun was coming in and it just felt very, uh, very, I mean, it wasn't entirely nature-ish, but it was very chill and, and, and kind of welcoming. And there was a song playing on the, on the speakers by a band called Kruang Bin. I think that's how you pronounce it, Kruang Bin. It's like a Thai 
band. And it's just this very chill, mellow song, like like kind of slow and, and beach vibes kind of thing. And now that song has to me become like a seed, like an aesthetic seed. So like I can I can use the song to um, recreate an entire state of mind for me. So it's, it's not just, so if I'm feeling stressed, I can put on that song and it's not just the song that chills me out and, and, and makes me mellow out, but it's also the associated memory with all the, the float tanks and the, you know, there's like Buddha statues and, and it's just, the, the whole place had that vibe and I can kind of carry that vibe with me in that, in that um, song, right? And I can subsequently, if I so choose, I can ch- and anybody can do this. So it, you know, you can you can choose to kind of um, chart. And so this gets into slightly wooey territory, but it's really just a game of associations. You can choose to charge, quote, charge an object with narrative meaning through a ceremony that you create yourself. And I mean, people instinctively understand this by like, you know, maybe there was a song that plays when you're walking down the aisle with your spouse when you're getting married. And now that song has been imbued with meaning for you. And every time you hear the song, you think of your spouse, right? I said, you can actually do that with any object at any time that you want to be, if there's something you want to be reminded of, you can get a tattoo if you want, right? And so there's just this this sense of, um, you have the freedom to weave your stories and your meaning into your objects, into your music, into your clothes, into how you decorate your house, the books you own. And um, there will be some sort of order to how you do it. And that order is based on your mind, right? So it might look disordered to somebody else, but it makes perfect sense to you. You might put, you know, some like you might put like, um, imagine like a sculpture of like a toilet and a sculpture of like something like, sacred and to you that is something profound it's like the uh, the merging of the sacred and the like somebody else might look at it and go what the fuck that's that's stupid or that's disturbing but to you it means something significant and so the internal logic that you have of the objects in relation to each other and in relation to you that's your aesthetic Mm. i have never managed to articulate that before so thanks i'm going to use that (laughs) <laughs> no worries, no worries. Um, it's it made me think of like uh, life itself as the ultimate act of of art, or it, it is the yeah, it's the, the, ul- the ultimate art art form. Just how how you choose to live. Yeah. Um, yeah. So social media. I mean, this all came to be because of social mm-hmm. media, uh, and many people lambast social media for reasons we don't need to get into. Uh, but you have obviously used it for tremendously uh, useful and uh, what I would say is uh, positive um, for positive reasons or in, in positive ways. So what do you think of, how do you think social media will evolve and perhaps needs to evolve or sh- should or could evolve in a way that would uh, maximize for connection and uh, good things all around, you know, promote human flourishing and maybe avoid some of the negative, uh, the negative things uh, from your experience. Right. So I, I don't know if, um, so sometimes people ask me for things like uh, proposals for like modifying kind of um, the mechanics of how social media works, which I, I am not, I don't feel confident and qualified to give a lot of 
suggestions on that front because I feel like um, you have to you have to study it closely and you have to consider mm. like the the unintended consequences and stuff like that. But what I do know and what I care about is it's a very individual centric um, approach, which is you know. So I'm not gonna expect any of the social media products or companies to solve this for us. I think I think it's really a I mean, I, I choose to focus on what I can control. And, you know, so my friend Anna, Anna Gutt, she has this, she had this tweet that was like, I think I live in some kind of weird bubble where all of my friends online are, you know, they are super curious and they are, you know, they're replying to each other with thanks for the clarification. And I'm not sure I understand you. <laughs> like, you know, this kind of very, very tentative thing. And she's like, I, I feel like I live in this weird bubble. And I retweeted that with, uh, you know, my goal in life is to expand this bubble as much as possible. And yeah, I think um, when people see, when, when like, uh, when common, I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but I believe that there's a very large group of people who, if and when they encounter this bubble themselves, they can see for themselves that it's self-evident that such a bubble is healthy and, and, and good. Uh, I mean, I can't speak on behalf of people who are like have been almost radically... Um, weaponized in the culture wars and they're like, you know, they, they sign, they go online with the intent of who can I yell at today? But yeah, so I approach, so this is what my accelerating hypermedia idea is about. So the, the, the idea is just that social media is nowhere as social as it could be in the sense that, you know, it's, it's optimized for publishing and it's, it's uh, my friend, Andrew, he said it's optimized for consumption, not connection. And yeah, basically, you know, if, if social media really cared about like, uh, you know, they could do like sentiment analysis and if you're about to tweet something like uncharitable, it could like, you know, prompt you, are you sure you want to tweet this nasty thing to somebody else? But the, you know, the platform incentivizes that because people yelling at each other is great engagement, which is great for ads and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, so we want to develop community norms in our little bubble and, and invite more and more people to participate where within this group of people, people kind of socially reward each other for being um, charitable, for, for supporting each other, and for, you know, when they disagree, they disagree kind of as civilly as possible. And I think I've already seen it happen. So, like, when I started, so I now have, like, 12,000 Twitter followers, which is a blessing. And I have people who have told me that they, them witnessing me do what I do has influenced how they interact with other people. And so the bubble is expanding. And so the challenge, I think, so I think it's one of those things where the best thing I can do is to just keep focusing on expanding the bubble. And, you know, even having this conversation with you and, and with your listeners, it's kind of like a, like an invitation to join the bubble in a sense. And I think if like, if that becomes more and more, um, the bigger the bubble gets, the more people will take notice. And may, maybe there may be some like, I can't predict whether that's going to turn out well all the way through. Like there may be some unforeseen conflicts and, and whatnot down the road. In fact, I, I anticipate that past a certain point, there will almost definitely be some bad shit that will happen that you can't foresee. But still, I think that the most fundamental principles of, you know, going all the way back to the library and then the internet is a library you can participate in and, and just the, the fundamental um, promise of the internet to me was that if you are kind and earnest and nerdy, like you can build out a network of correspondence 
with other kind, friendly nerds around the world. They just need to know who you are and where you are and they need to be able to contact you and you need to be able to contact them. And yeah, so, you know, I almost, I almost disregard the like shit flinging crazy <laughs> wild. Like you can't, you can't really save them. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't have, I don't, I don't possess the patience and the, the I've tried before and like you can spend hours and, and not get anywhere. And so I, I've come around to, there's always more interesting kind nerds like outside your social graph that you don't currently know about. So I'm always trying to find the others. So mm-hmm. I'm constantly like, oh, where are the other, you know, curious, kind, non-pedestally kind of players, people who are pl- like playing in a playful way. And yeah, I think, I think there's, there's like several hundred of us that I know of on Twitter-ish. And if we can get that to the thousands, maybe there'll be something to look forward to. Yeah, that sounds, uh, I'd love to see that happen. I'd love to see that happen. It's a yeah. great bubble from, from the, I'm thinking of a few people who may be in that bubble and I uh, enjoy uh, the way they engage yeah. the world around them and it's definitely made my life more positive. Um, so yes. I guess we'll come up to uh, just we'll wrap up shortly. I just a few quick rapid fire questions mm-hmm. I want to throw you away. Um, rapid fire. What was rapid fire? Boom, boom, boom. Uh, what was the last thing you <laughs> changed your mind on? Last thing I changed my mind on probably travel. I think um, when I was younger, I thought of travel as... You know, something like, I mean, I always sort of thought of travel as, it sounds good, sounds like a good thing to do, but I wasn't drawn to it. I, I think um, I didn't appreciate uh, how, so so my wife is big on travel, like she loves to travel and uh, she traveled on her own when she was younger and she would try and persuade me to travel. I'm like, oh, you know, what, what do you want to see? Like you can see stuff on online, you can see stuff. You know, you can watch videos and stuff. Like, do we really need to like pack our shit and go somewhere else just to see stuff? Like the internet is not so good and, you know, stuff like that. But having traveled more and I think particularly now having met people, I realized that uh, travel is really, is about experiencing different ways of being and, and being somewhere that is unfamiliar and strange. It, it, it's not just about what you see over there, right? It's, it's who, it's finding out what about yourself is kind of context dependent to your current context that you're not aware of because you are in your current context. So, it, so travel becomes this, this it's, so how I sell it to myself now is that travel is practically a psychedelic experience. It's like you go somewhere and everything's different and you have to re, it's, you know, it's, it's the closest thing left, I think, to, to a kind of, adventure that you can have mm-hmm. it, it depends on how you frame it so if you go if you're going to go for like travel guide guided tours and stuff that's not so thing but if you go somewhere and you kind of improvise your way through and you if you have friends abroad and you can get can meet them like that stuff is fun and i i regret not traveling more when i was younger yeah but so i'm i'm looking to to correct that maybe i'll come and find you in australia yeah yeah well down in sydney you're always welcome <laughs> It's a good place. Sweet. It's a good place. Um, what are some of your, what are some of the books or documentaries, essays that have impacted you the most? Books. Um, okay. So the, the books, authors, essays. authors as well, like just general authors. I would say, um, you know, so I, I, somebody challenged me to describe myself in terms of authors and like, or like speakers and whatnot. And I, I like to describe myself as a, a little bit of Mr. Rogers, who's like that friendly neighborhood guy on TV. Uh, a bit of Alan Watts. Alan Watts is probably my primary influence in terms of like uh, spirituality, playfulness. 
a bit of George Carlin. So Carlin was a was more of a like a cynical um, social theorist comedian. And uh, I would also add Haley Williams. So Haley from Paramore, the singer. Like she has this very. Um, you know, so I, I it was my favorite band when I was a teen, and and what I enjoy about her is you know even lyrically she has this message of like hope and 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 like earnestness and like as a as a kind of leader of a band and a and a fan base like she has this very nurturing perspective and I try to embody that. So those are people. Um, as for books, there's this book by Lewis Thomas who's not very famous. He's he was this like science biology watcher slash essayist from the 70s and he had this very um big picture view of things and he kind of he like predicted the internet like in the 70s based on like comparing how like um, life forms evolve from single cell organisms to complex organisms and like he said that thoughts were kind of coalescing and then becoming like eventually all thoughts would be part of a network the same way like um, coral reefs and stuff and he had many many short essays like these where he would you know he would examine the earth as a single cell organism with a membrane protecting it and he would talk about how um, nation states are kind of like selfish individuals that don't trust each other and he just has all these interesting bio- biology grounded metaphors for making sense of reality and it's very poetic and musical so I enjoyed him a lot um, apart from Lewis Thomas Alan Watts uh, David Ogilvy the the advertising guy, if you read his memoir, his autobiography, he has this very um, cheerful, uh, he has kind of a, uh, you know, he, he manages to walk this tightrope of being self-confident, but not insufferable. So like he knows what he's good at and he, he speaks conf- confidently with conviction. And yet, you know, like he says, you know, I know what's good and I, I go after like, this is what I do. This is what works. This is, this is what gets, gets results. And he also is like able to be self-deprecating in a way. Like I think he was talking about when one of his partners left the company and he said something like, I, I, I'm glad that he can now flourish unburdened by an insufferable partner like me. So, you know, he has a very charming, classy guy who's like, and you know that he, he built a company that was, you know, like at its time, it was like very well known. So it's very, a great taste, great writer. So that's uh, Ogilvy. Who else? Ellen Watts, Ogilvy, Lewis Thomas. Uh, I feel like I should include at least one more. Mm, let me pick, let's say, let's pick a woman. Let's say uh, Jeanette Winterson. So Jeanette Winterson is, she's still around and she, she, her, she, her book, um, Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal. That's the title of one of her autobiographies, which is, already you get the sense, right? Like she's, she, she talks, she has this sensitivity and she talks about being kind of, you know, she said, uh, I think there's a line that was like, I found myself dashed onto the shores of humankind and finding it not very human and not very kind. Like, you know, she has this very, she's this very, like, great sense of drama and, and playful, and like, uh, playful. And also there's, there's like, she was like an adopted child and her mom who adopted her was not very good at being a parent and just she navigates that very skillfully and you know there's there's playfulness but then there's also like anger and sadness but it's all very well managed so mm. I think that's quite a nice thing to learn from oh and I, I guess I would pick I'm looking at my bookshelf now I would pick uh, Richard Feynman as well like uh, yeah. surely surely a joking Mr. Feynman yeah yeah there's a there's a fun line that's like uh, I mean it's just it's the, the thing that I tell people is that with books it's never so much about 
what they say, but how they say it. So it's, it's, I'm not looking to find like, oh, they said this, this is a quote, then the quote is amazing and I'm going to hold the quote to my heart. It's more of like, how, how do they see the world? Or how do they navigate the world? So it's like, like I try to inherit their way of seeing. So it becomes like I'm collecting lenses that I can swap in with like I can borrow how would Ogilvy respond to this or how would Winterson respond to this or how would Feynman respond to this and that, that you know it's like a, it's like having this council in your head that like an advisory board which is great uh, and uh, last question um, if you could just spread a message of anything if you could just leave a you know a parting message to the listeners uh, what would that be parting messages to listeners hmm I would say, um, hmm, let me think. All right. So I have, I have, I believe that every person has, so this, I'm going to enter slightly wooey territory, but I mean, you can, you can, you can translate this into secular stuff. I'm just going to talk about it like directly, which is that I, I believe that everybody has a certain voltage and you know, like you, you can try and find some kind of a, maybe, maybe you can measure it in emotional resonance and you can go into an MRI and look at the brain or, you know, you can talk about nerve endings and stuff like that. But, but it's, I'm talking in a more symbolic kind of sense. Like everybody has a voltage, which is the, the amount of energy, you know, emotional energy. I don't know if there's such a thing as psychic energy. Uh, I, I believe that this is what, you know, when you read about, uh, like in Chinese texts, you read about chi and you read in like Hindu texts, I mean, or like Indian stuff talking about like, oh, unblocking your chakras. Like there's all these, it's interesting that whether or not you believe those things are literally true, it's interesting that they are, you know, in like Polynesian culture, there's this idea of mana, right? Like, and it's interesting that in all these different cultures, there's this concept of some kind of, of life force. Some, I guess some people might say it's your soul. And, you know, without being too eager to say, oh, that doesn't exist. There's no scientific proof for that. Like this, it's interesting that so many different cultures all kind of have the same vague idea of this kind of energy. And I'm going to suggest that maybe we could consider this kind of energy as a kind of emotional energy, maybe, or like a narrative energy. It's just, it's just how much, um, you know, like confidence and conviction with which you can have your actions. And, and that's contextualized by the story that you're in, right? And I believe that, and you, know, you, could, see, you could call it like the sacred flame. Maybe, you know, there's so many, like Prometheus in the flame. There's so many metaphors for this, but there's some kind of energy or life force. So however this resonates with you, it, it might, and if, if it's totally bullshit, then disregard it. But if, it, if something is resonating, consider what the expression of your your sacred flame or your voltage or your chi or your mana or consider what the expression of that is and think about what it would be like to turn that up right and so like you know the objects around you your friends around you everybody your entire life is kind of is kind of a a manifestation of of that energy anyways how excited are you to wake up in the morning right like when you wake up in the morning if you're got if you know if you have a friend flying in from across the planet that you're really looking forward to meeting you get excited you're like oh fuck i can't wait to wake up and go and meet this guy for lunch and you know you can like that so that that is the obvious kind of great thing to look forward to and sometimes it's like some terrible shit that you don't want to look forward to and then you feel the energy levels dip you're like oh i gotta go to file my taxes or some some dumb shit that you don't want to do and so that's kind of like i think the spectrum of 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 like your your energy level. Again, I, I use the word energy very flippantly. I don't know what I'm talking about. But like, 
if you once you consider that and then consider that there's probably some kind of baseline level of where your energy is your mind whatever you want to call it right your, i call it voltage for, for from fun and you know like the objects in your life and the, the books on your shelf and everything kind of adds up into kind of uh, you so you you will be at some level of homeostasis like you'll be you will be at some level that you have deemed appropriate so like how how much excitement you bring to a party or to how how kind of um, energetically you throw yourself into your work like whatever it is that you're doing like you bring some level of that thing with you your spirit mana whatever thing with you and I ju- just invite you to consider what would it take to turn that dial up like you're probably every, I'm, the average person is probably at like a six or a five I mean, if you're listening to the podcast maybe 6.5 ish seven like just <laughs> just for, for fun for fun just imagine what it would be like to turn it up to 10 turn it up to 11 and like if you went crazy and you just freaking you know like like um lightning bursting through your veins like what would your life look like then uh you know like how violently would you modify your like what would that that kind of um violent expression look like for your for your clothes for your would you wear makeup you know i mean that's that's the visual element would you seek out friends some would you travel would you suddenly like if if your voltage went all the way up would you suddenly pick up motorbike racing you know just kind of wild flights of fancy just consider what what a high voltage life might look for you and then from there maybe ask yourself what would it be like if you turned it up a little bit and then you know i believe that once you just start experimenting with those questions you will probably find that actually you could live a higher voltage life than you're currently living you would probably enjoy it and you just haven't done it yet because because nobody ever encourages you to do it because it higher voltage life is a more volatile life it's a more unpredictable life it's um, the potential there's more potential upside and there's also more potential downside and nobody wants to you know you tell your friend hey go and do something crazy and then they come back and they're like injured or something and then they're like oh it's your fault that I went cliff diving and broke my leg so you know I'm not saying you should go cliff diving but you should consider what your equivalent of going cliff diving would be and have that kind of articulate that for yourself and you know maybe make plans to consider doing some of it and and live a more passionate excited life yeah that's my invitation turn up the voltage guys all right so i hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as i did uh, if you want to find some of the links or uh, just the general things mentioned in this in this episode head to talkoftoday.com and just find the the episode show notes there uh, if you'd like to follow Visa, you can do so on Twitter at VisaKanV. Um, that will also be linked in the show notes. Uh, he's got a Patreon. He's got a blog. Um, I recommend checking out all of it. And if you really enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, uh, you can do so by sharing it with your friends, by leaving it a review on iTunes. Uh, and if you'd like to support the show um, by other means, uh, you can do so by going to talkoftoday.com and just clicking support. Anyway. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye for now.